Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When Diplomacy Fails presents... Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hey guys, welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome to Hello When Diplomacy Hello and welcome fails. to When Diplomacy Fails. A project... Five years in the making. The Franco-Prussian War. The Seven Years' War. Of the When Diplomacy Fails Special on Napoleon. The Crimean War. To When Diplomacy Fails Special on World War I. The Dutch Revolt. To the When Diplomacy Fails Special on the Thirty Years' War. The July Crisis Anniversary Project. The Swedish Deluge. Britain goes to war. The 1916. To the Franco-Dutch War of 1672. This is When Diplomacy Fails remastered This is the first part of When Diplomacy Fails Remastered look at the Austro-Prussian War, which originally aired as one episode on the 11th of November, 2012. Hello and welcome to the podcast. So, the Austro-Prussian War was a conflict which lasted barely a season in 1866, but it profoundly altered European history and thus world history in that space of time. By the end of the war, a new power had been confirmed in Europe, and an old dynasty had been convincingly beaten. This war is important not just for those reasons, but also for the seeds of conflict which it helped to sow. Within a few years after the Austro-Prussian War, France and Prussia would be enmeshed in their own, more famous, conflict, the results of which impacted even more profoundly on the world stage. In a sense, this war, the Danish-Prussian War before it and the Franco-Prussian War after it, were all the results of a policy that was the brainchild of Otto von Bismarck, and they were set in motion according to the set plan which he had in mind. If it succeeded, it would recast Prussia first as a regional powerhouse, then as a German superpower, then as a supremely powerful, first-rate empire in Europe. It was a path fraught with risks, as Bismarck knew full well, but 
His risk-taking and incredible cunning set European history down the course which we now recognise. We are living in the world, to a large extent, that Bismarck commanded into being. Without wars like these, Europe as we know it would have evolved, competed and cooperated in a far different fashion. So it was that when I settled down to examine this war originally, I felt immense pressure to do it and the era justice. Having begun when diplomacy fails with arguably Bismarck's greatest hit in the Franco-Prussian War, I wanted to show here that before he was famous, so to speak, the Iron Chancellor was more than capable of knocking them out of the park as well. Mindful of this goal, yet again, let's give it another go. Before we get into that though guys, you know the drill by now. It's time to very briefly advertise Patreon, and the fact that When Diplomacy Fails has a Patreon, and the fact that you can get immense, wonderful advantages by going to Patreon. This whole thing took a good while to set up, and while I really enjoyed it, I would really appreciate you guys throwing a little bit of dollars my way in return for, well, a mug, a pen, a magnet, a badge, a t-shirt, a hoodie, a book, all sorts of stuff, and it all awaits. It also means that you guys can be part of this strange, curious thing that we called When Diplomacy Fails. And it's five years old, so as a present to When Diplomacy Fails, rather than giving cake, because that probably won't travel very well over online services, etc., joining up with Patreon, becoming a diplomat, becoming an embassy intern, becoming a foreign secretary, that would really help us out. With that said then, we can now jump back into it. Remember to be fit, and I will now take you to the year 1815. Thanks guys. Enjoy it, it's a good one. Preventative war is like committing suicide for fear of death. Otto von Bismarck. It's unlikely that Napoleon knew exactly what he was doing when he made the Confederation of the Rhine in 1806. First and foremost, it was a way to group the tiny German principalities and states into a manageable block which could properly and efficiently serve him. But it also had an unintended consequence. It encouraged first the birth, then the growth, and then the thriving of German nationalism. Such feelings were strong in the years after Napoleon's defeat, since even though the author of this German experiment had been defeated, his ideas were not so easily cast aside. In the Congress of Vienna, German states were redrawn, mostly for convenience, but also because it had clearly worked before when Napoleon had done it. The German Confederation was the result of the politicking and negotiating that came out of the Congress of Vienna. Britain was happy because it meant a reasonably stable state, if you want to call it that, existed in the centre of Europe, which would hopefully balance things a bit, while Austria and Prussia were happy because it meant that there was a buffer between their two states. But the German Confederation wasn't really what you could call a state. It certainly looked better on the map of Europe, alright. No longer was there the messy and intimidating patchwork of tiny states and microstates and principalities, etc. This was replaced instead by an association of 39 states. A federal assembly in Frankfurt represented the sovereigns of those 39 states, not the people. And this leads to a few complexities which are just a ton of fun to try and wrap your head around. For starters, Austria and Prussia had one vote in this assembly, but because the Netherlands, Denmark and Britain all owned their own states that happened to be in this confederation, they were all members of the federal assembly and had one vote each as well. 
Six other Grand Dukes or Kings also had six respective votes. These rulers included those in Bavaria, Saxony, Württemberg, Hesse-Kassel, Baden and Hesse. 23 states each shared five votes, while the four free cities of Lübeck, Frankfurt, Bremen and Hamburg shared one. Article 1 of the German Confederal Treaty declared that The Deutscher Bund or German Confederation is an international association of German sovereign princes and free cities to preserve the independence and inviolability of the member states and to preserve the inner and outer security of Germany. In an interesting contrast, Jonathan Steinberg in his book Bismarck A Life notes The structure and arrangement of the treaty have the charm and clarity of the Lisbon Treaty of the European Union in 2007. Nobody but experts ever really cared to understand it, just as today where very few people outside Brussels can explain how the European Union works. With the structure and groundwork for German cooperation established, at least in theory, however unwieldy the whole apparatus would become in the future, was now irrelevant. Now Germans could cooperate and excel in the centre of Europe. Except that they didn't excel. They didn't do anything particularly imaginary, and they certainly didn't show any signs of the kind of leadership and monopoly they would come to wield over the European balance of power in the coming decades. From the years immediately after 1815 to the years of European Revolution in 1848, Germany as we know it today was a less than inspiring place to live, despite the potential its people had as a whole to dominate the continent as one. Heyo Holborn, in his book A History of Germany, 1840 to 1945, notes on the period when he said, The economic and social forces that determined the forward course of English and French history in the first half of the 19th century had no counterparts in Germany. The German economy did not experience very considerable expansion between 1815 and 48. Even disregarding the years immediately prior to the revolution of 1848, years of special hardship and misfortune, we are driven to conclude that the German people as a whole were hardly better off in 1845 than they were in 1800. Germans were for the most part mindful of the nationalist appeal of unification, but if you can remember as far back as episode 1, there was, for the moment, simply too many things that stood in the way of unifying. The fact that the big two in Prussia and Austria were both watching each other and the smaller German states with a mixture of hunger, apprehension, excitement and despair meant that any German who dreamed of a greater Germany would, for the moment, have to pick a side. Austria would rule Germany or Prussia would. Surely the two could not just get along. Both states had too many historical and political grievances to air and would not allow the other to gain too much power at their own expense. Tensions were even rising in the Federal Assembly, and camps had emerged supporting the Prussian and Austrian side of the argument respectively, while a further camp emerged that wanted everything to stay the way it was, while a further group, aside from all those, emerged, advocating equal power distributed between all German-speaking states. Germany simply wasn't ready for unification just yet, since it still had niggling economic and social issues to solve. As Holborn noted, between 1815 and 45, the population of Germany, excluding Austria, grew from 25 to 34.5 million. The German governments were alarmed and predictions were made about the dire consequences of a multiplying population, which prompted some of them, chiefly in southern and central Germany, to issue laws making marriage contingent on a means test. These laws were signs of prevailing doubts about the chances for an expansion of the economy, and optimism was certainly ill-founded, so long as Germany lacked the capital required for any large-scale development. 
Those revolutions are referred to do a certain amount of crossing into our story in the later years. If you remember, it was around this time that Napoleon III made his grab for power, completely oblivious to the fate that would befall him, by a soon-to-be nation-state which looked in 1848 like a pitiful rendition of the German nationalist dream. The revolutions didn't just occur in France, although the second French revolution that brought Napoleon III to power is widely seen as the prelude to the revolutions everywhere else. In Germany in particular, the revolts were a response to an emerging critique of the autocracy, which was so entrenched into the German states, where absolute monarchs ruled their tiny kingdoms by decree and answered only to the wider agenda of the German confederation. The revolts in Germany also demanded freedom of the press, representation and properly negotiated and explained paths to eventual unification. And that last one is a particularly interesting point. Liberals and advocates of change marched in the various parades and took part in the demonstrations throughout Germany's states because they were in part motivated by a desire to see Germany unified. You could be forgiven for thinking that this desire would be welcomed in the nationalistic furor that the early 19th century spawned, It probably would have been, if not for the elephant in the room which was the German dualism, aka the question over whether it should be Austria or Prussia, who would lead this new Germany. Nonetheless, it was still a very important time in Germany. The Wormars revolutionaries, as they were called, named after the period of German history which was believed to have started after Napoleon's defeat, adopted numerous symbols such as the German flag and the now infamous slash famous line Deutschland, Deutschland über alles, which of course we know means Germany, Germany above everything. However, that phrase was not intended to be a declaration of superiority. It was instead meant to represent Germans uniting in their cause to stop the anti-liberal autocrats of Germany, preventing the kind of progress they felt Germany needed. It was only in the 1936 Olympics, when Hitler stood in the stadium accepting the rapturous applause of 3,000 Germans, and the first verse of the anthem played, that such a phrase became associated with the Nazis. And because of this, I would feel a a musical gem was damned to controversy. In my opinion, it's a shame, because it's one of the best anthems out there today, if not the best. The majority of these liberal movements that had spawned from the 1848 revolutions were crushed by the better-equipped autocratic governments over the next year, with the notable exception being in Denmark, where the Long-reigning absolute monarchy had been removed there, and the abolition of serfdom was successfully passed in Austria and Hungary. I don't want to get into the revolutions too much important as they were, because I'm sure Mike Duncan will cover them at some point, but it is important to bear in mind where we came from and how we got to this point, where the Germans were slowly unifying and where German nationalism was sort of permeating German society. Rather than focusing too much on the revolutions, though, I want to point you towards a certain figure who was climbing up the political ladder, too slowly, in his opinion, in Prussia. His name is Otto Edward Leopold, Prince of Bismarck and Duke of Lonberg, but we know him today simply as Otto von Bismarck, Prince Biz, the greatest man who ever lived, and arguably (laughs) the mainstay of this podcast. I promise I'm not that obsessed, but his story is one which will lead us nicely into the next chapter of Austro-Prussian Affairs. And if you want to understand those affairs, or indeed the next 40 years of European geopolitics, you simply must look at what Bismarck did or was doing in Europe. More famously after 1870, when he had the power of a unified Germany at his back, but, most strikingly in my opinion, in the early years of his political career when he had no such power, and was completely focused on rising to the top of the German political system, starting with its Ministry for Foreign Affairs. 
you all know how I feel about Bismarck. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I even named the highest reward tier in When Diplomacy Fells' patron page after him, so I think that says everything, really, but I'm sure you weren't surprised that I did that. Well, history would have been very different had his mother, Wilhelmine Louise Mencken, died along with him during childbirth as she so nearly did. Born in 1815, just as the old world had been reformed by the Quill in the Congress of Vienna, Bismarck used his status as a Prussian Junker born into a wealthy family to get a quality education. The years 1832-35 to involve him getting an education in universities in Göttingen and Berlin, graduating in 1835 with a keen interest in politics, a degree in law which was virtually essential at that time to be able to advance in any kind of sense in the public sphere, and a belief in the divine right and authority of kings that he would carry for his whole life. He also had a firm grounding in languages, which he only improved upon later in life. He had fluency in English, French, Italian, Russian, obviously German, and, more surprisingly perhaps, Polish. He also had a pretty snazzy haircut at 21 years of age, so that's something too. He was married on the 28th of July 1847, after a moderately successful seven-week course in political training. His best man, Hans von Kleist Ritzau, stated that Bismarck would be a new Otto the Saxon, the namesake of legendary medieval duke Otto the Great. Bismarck's wife, Johanna, was, unsurprisingly, very happy to be married to such a wonderful man. No, I, mean, I actually mean she genuinely was, I'm not just saying that. And we know this because she wrote to her parents on the 25th of August that year, saying that, The world gets more beautiful with every passing day, and Otto, with all his warmth, is heartily good and loving. While on his honeymoon, Bismarck met some of the movers and shakers in the coming years, including Albrecht von Roon, a travelling tutor for the Prussian prince, Friedrich Karl, as well as his cousin, Count Fritz von Bismarck Wohlen, both of which had the ear of the Prussian king, Frederick William IV. On the 6th of September 1847, 
Bismarck went to the same theatre as this group of friends he had associated himself with, and there he met the Prussian king himself. This momentous event in the life of the now 32-year-old was recorded by him in his own memoirs. Bismarck wrote, The king commanded me to call upon him in the course of the winter, and I did so. Both on this occasion and at smaller dinners I became persuaded that I stood high in the favour of both the king and queen, and that the former, in avoiding speaking to me in public, at the time of the session of the Diet, did not mean to criticise my political conduct, but at the same time did not wish to let others see so visibly his approval of me. The significance of this date, either unknown or forgotten, when one considers Bismarck's life, is emphasised by Jonathan Steinberg in his book Bismarck, A Life, when Steinberg wrote, The two essential elements of Bismarck's career had thus fallen into place. These were the certainty that he could master political bodies and gain the favour of the king. From September 1847 to March 1890, he always had both. When he lost the latter, he lost power. He never had any other foundation for his achievements. No crowd followed him and no party acknowledged him as a leader. Things moved pretty fast for Bismarck now, though he encountered a few hiccups when he proposed that the king's nephew be placed on the throne instead of the indecisive incumbent, King Frederick William IV. So offended was Augusta, mother of said nephew, that the two developed a hatred of each other that never really faded. It was her loss, and he wasn't really stopped anyway. He continued to expand his influence upon his election to the Landtag or local parliament. From here, he was elected to the short-lived Erfurt Parliament, a body concerned solely with unification along Prussian guidance, even though Bismarck, surprisingly, opposed unification at this stage on the grounds that it would sap Prussian influence. So yes, that means that Bismarck became one of those guys who just sits in Parliament and vetoes everything. An interesting diplomatic event then occurred in the November of 1850, when Austria, supported by Russia, moved to end the Prussian hegemony over German influence and re-establish the more neutral, or perhaps more pro-Austrian, German Confederation, which collapsed during the course of the 1848 revolutions. During the period 1848-50, the Frankfurt Parliament had also stood, with such revolutionary ideas as liberal democracy, representation not limited to nobility, and the complete unification of all German-speaking peoples under the rule of the Prussian king, Frederick William IV. That last one made things a bit awkward for Prussia, because while the prospect of ruling over German states was obviously appealing, and no doubt would have been considered flattering at the time to the Prussian sense of honour, the implications for offending those monarchs already in power, in, in place of their tiny German states and across the wider German-speaking collection of states, were obvious. You should make no mistake in this, because it wasn't necessarily the bureaucrats, but the people that dreamt of unity and fair government that put all these ideas forward. It certainly wasn't the sovereigns of those states that advocated Prussian rule. These smaller states were horrified, and Frederick William was, of course, at pains to stress how little he wanted to upset the apple cart, etc., 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 but it was more likely the sheer force of Austrian eyes staring holes in his every move that sealed the deal. Frederick knew Austria would never stand for Prussia and the other German states joining forces, even though Freddie could, of course, have made it look really good if he'd wanted to by organising it along the lines of, well, I'm only doing what the people want me to, or something to that effect. But Austria knew people too, people like Russia, who could really complicate things for the Germans and their nationalist dreams. 
This, in short, was why the Frankfurt Parliament of 1848-49 failed, and the Erfurt Parliament soon after failed for the same reasons, though it only lasted a month and was instigated by Prussia itself, rather than followed by it. All these events, whether you're confused or not, you should just remember that they led to what was called the Humiliation of Olmutz, and this was a shattering experience for Prussia and those who dreamed of Prussian influence in the German-speaking world. Prussia had been completely outmaneuvered, its bluff had been called, and she had been forced into a very public and apparently damaging withdrawal. The whole thing reads like the downfall or end of a state's dreams on the grand stage. Steinberg noted of the situation when he wrote, A crisis blew up in the Duchy of Hesse-Kassel when the reactionary duke had turned the clock back to 1847, annulled the gains of the revolution and restored absolutism. His subjects who had enjoyed freedoms under their new constitution rebelled by going on tax strike. On the 17th of September, the Grand Duke, Frederick William II, appealed to the German Confederation under the terms of its foundation for federal execution, that is, military intervention, to help him restore order. The territories of Hesse-Kassel lay between the western Prussian provinces, and the idea that Saxon or Hanoverian troops might block Prussia's east-west axis in their advance to Hesse-Kassel alarmed and outraged senior officers, who otherwise wanted nothing to do with the Erfurt Union, its parliament, or any other such institution. On the 1st of November, troops of the German Confederation marched into the electorate of Hesse to put down the revolt. The Prussian action to protect its lines of communication put the king in the absurd position of defending revolution against a legitimate sovereign, and Tsar Nicholas of Russia made such threats that war preparations began in Prussia. The Prussian government drifted towards a war with the combined party of Austria and Russia and the German Confederation to defend a position which nobody accepted any longer, but to admit that would be to suffer a complete humiliation. Boy, that escalated quickly, that got out of hand real fast, which surely have been the words of the Prussian king, but the truth was that Berlin's paranoid and aggressive foreign policy had backed Prussia into a corner, and coming back out would require a lot of saying sorry and admitting you were wrong, which of course, as we know, was something that the Prussians didn't like doing very much. They had to in the end, though, and King Frederick William IV fired his Prime Minister in order to rejoin the German Confederation, which was now firmly under the thumb of Austria. It was quite a come down. Prussia had to grin and just bear the jeers for now. What other choice did she have other than a war against insurmountable odds? Bismarck's feelings at this time moved him to deliver one of his most memorable speeches, mostly in response to what had just happened and the humiliation that had really taken the Prussians down a peg. On the 3rd of September, 1850, Bismarck declared... Why do great states fight wars today? The only sound basis for a large state is egoism and not romanticism. That is what necessarily distinguishes a large state from a small one. It is not worthy for a large state to fight a war that is not in its own interests. Just show me an objective worth of war, gentlemen, and I will agree with you. The honour of Prussia, in my view, does not consist of appeasing every offended parliamentary bigwig in Germany who feels his local constitution is in jeopardy. His words caused a sensation. The realpolitik which Bismarck would make so famous can be seen in its genesis here, as well as the icy tone and sarcastic cynicism which saved those conservatives who had backed down and been apparently humiliated. Prussia was not going to get anywhere by making sure its tiny German neighbours were happy. Prussia was destined for something more, Bismarck believed. 
When the cause was big enough, Prussia would answer to it. But until then, who wants to fight a war for Hesse Castle anyway? Furthermore, who wants to get upset about something as small time as the German Confederation, whatever that is? The next year, Bismarck was scooped up by the Prussian government and sent to work as their ambassador to the Diet of the German Confederation in Frankfurt, which was one of the free cities, if you recall. Basically, this was a fancy way of saying that in the city of Frankfurt, he would sit in their assembly or diet and represent Prussia. But still, it was highly significant. It meant that Bismarck's career as an apprentice was finally over. Diplomacy was this new world which Bismarck had so longed to dive into, and now he had his chance. It didn't take very long before Bismarck, living in the lap of luxury in Frankfurt, became aware of the situation unfolding in France. Louis Napoleon had resurrected the title of emperor, and in the process became Napoleon III on the 7th of November, 1852. Because Louis Napoleon wanted to emulate his uncle in every way possible, he felt that he had to overturn the current balance of power in Europe, more specifically in Germany, which Austria and Prussia had so recently settled. This was significant to Bismarck, because it meant that Napoleon III's foreign affairs policy was deeply concerned with the demolition of Austrian influence and power, just as Napoleon Bonaparte had been before. Napoleon III was no Napoleon Bonaparte, though, and he was living in the past if he thought that Austria would just roll over and allow France to take its pride of place at the top of the European pecking order. The French hadn't fared well over the previous years, you see, beginning with the Congress of Vienna in 1815 that had ensured the country would be paralysed for the next few decades. Unpopular governments and kings had been cycled through, and the revolutions that had given Napoleon III the chance to seize power and the French imperial crown, in what he hoped would be a straightforward process of first gaining a monopoly on power in France and then establishing France as the primary power in all of Europe, perhaps fight some necessary wars, see the Crimea and Mexico, and eventually recreate the empire under the nose of the same powers that had fought France so bitterly a generation before. Such a policy was thoroughly focused on Austria, not Prussia. Prussia was the useful wild card that Napoleon III could use to his advantage, Napoleon was, perhaps, one of the most essential parts to the story of Bismarck's success, because without him, the subsequent actions of the French would never have played so perfectly into Bismarck's hands. Jonathan Steinberg, as ever, recalls the scene. He wrote, With the emergence of Louis-Napoleon Bonaparte, Bismarck's subsequent career became possible. No other conceivable French ruler could have played so perfectly into Bismarck's hands as Napoleon III. No other great state had as much reason to destroy Austrian power in Europe, exactly the goal Bismarck had come to Frankfurt to pursue. Bismarck's reaction shows his unconventional and acute sense of political possibilities. He advocated an accommodation with the new Bonaparte to discourage Austria and the smaller German princes. Leopold von Gerlach, adjutant to Prussian king Frederick William IV, and a conservative associate of Bismarck, received a letter from Otto in January 1853 where Bismarck pondered aloud to him about the situation. Bismarck wrote, I am convinced it would be a great misfortune for Prussia if her government should enter into an alliance with France, but even if we make no use of it, we ought to never remove from the consideration of our allies the possibility that under certain conditions we might choose this evil as the lesser of the two. Bismarck understood the realities of the day. He knew that an alliance with Imperial France would frighten Austria, and that France would be all too willing to sign it because it would fall in line with what they wanted to achieve in Europe. But such an alliance, would it push away the very German states that Bismarck hoped to bring to his side? 
And that was the question that Bismarck really toiled with, and he eventually decided that an alliance with France was worth the message it would send to Austria, and the power would surely grant Prussia. In the next episode we will examine exactly how Bismarck sought to set this curious diplomatic plan into motion. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.